Thanks for joining us today for Access Utah. Before we jump into today's uh, subject matter, uh, unfinished business from yesterday, you recall we uh, answered your questions about the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. And uh, Steve wrote in uh, to upraxis at gmail.com. Steve says, I'm listening to this evening's rebroadcast of today's program about taking gradual steps from pandemic protocols back to normalcy, which I hope is not jumping the gun as some epidemiological models forecast it may be. May I say something about grocery shopping? Kind of a picayune point, really, but even in small ways, it's best to be smart. One of your guests noted that the current practice some grocery stores have implemented establishing one-way shopping aisles in grocery stores. There may be some psychological benefit to this, but beyond that, it's of little or no practical benefit. Why? Because grocery aisles are not city streets, and grocery shoppers, be they pushing shopping carts or scavenging the aisles on foot, are not automobiles. Cars are vehicles for travel, propelled steadfastly from point A to point B. They're on a mission and they're passing through. Shoppers, by contrast, are gatherers on the hunt for what's required. They cannot know exactly on which level or on which shelf a particular item's located. So they've got to move back and forth against the one-way aisle direction and with it until they find what they seek. One way is meaningless in this setting unless we expect shoppers to circle the same aisle many times, entering it from the same direction again and again until finally they arrive at that happy spot where the item they're looking for is stocked. Tom, I'm carrying out about a moot point as the one-way rule in grocery stores is not enforced, and frankly, how could it be? But one of your guests offered it as an important safety protocol, which it isn't. That's Steve. So uh, keep those emails coming to upraxcess at gmail.com. This time on the program, a public lands cooperation success story. A while back, the Aspen on Monroe Mountain in central Utah were in serious need of restoration. The situation could easily have descended into a blame game with wildlife advocates saying that livestock were eating all of the young Aspen and grazing advocates saying that wildlife were eating all the young Aspen. Sit All Sides launched an innovative project, the Monroe Mountain Working Group. Individuals and groups that in other circumstances might have been fighting came together to solve the problem. Well, today we're going to be talking with members of the Monroe Mountain Working Group, Fish Lake National Forest Richfield District Ranger Jason Kling, Mary O'Brien with the Utah Forest, uh, uh, who is the Utah Forest Program Director with Utah with the Grand Canyon Trust, and Tom Tibbetts, uh, Central Region Coordinator for Utah Agriculture and Food Department's Grazing Improvement uh, Program. So let me start with uh, Jason Kling. Uh, tell us first of all where Monroe Mountain is, and, and then I'll uh, I'll follow up with a question. Yeah, so Monroe Mountain, um, about 175,000 acres of national forest system lands. Um, it's located just south of Richfield. Uh, Richfield is on the north end of Monroe Mountain. you got Marysville on the uh, west side, and the towns of Pusherum and... Greenwich on the east side, and then down on the south end, um, Anamone, Kingston, Otter Creek Reservoir. So it's uh, that general um, area of Utah, um, about 175,000 acres of, of the National Forest piece. Yeah, it's a beautiful area. Um, and so uh, it, the, the Monroe Mountain Working Group has to do with uh, working uh, with, with the health of the Aspen uh, there. Tell us about uh, the, the issues and, I guess, the conflicting issues there. Yeah, so so when you look at uh, the Monroe Mountain as a whole, um, much of what you find up there on that particular landscape is is Aspen 
or, or areas that uh, historically were Aspen or, or areas that want to be Aspen. And what we've uh, been able to learn um, through this process, uh, looking at old historic photos um, and so forth, is is uh, the Aspen on Monroe Mountain, we've seen about a 70% decline. So there's a couple of different reasons uh, for that decline that we'll get into here on the rest of the show. But, uh, you know, the big, the big things are um, Aspen uh, evolved with disturbance. Uh, primarily it would have been uh, fire. And, and when you take uh, that disturbance out of the equation, then that allows for conifer trees and, and other species to, uh, with time, eventually um, outcompete and take over and, and crowd the aspens out. So, so that's one thing that we've seen is, is uh, this conifer expansion. Um, another thing that we've seen up there is, is uh, with aspen, not a lot of new aspen um, growing up and reaching that six-foot mark. So we've got lots of old aspen trees, but not necessarily uh, enough new aspen trees coming up to replace those older ones. And then you look at uh, livestock grazing, wildlife management, uh, private lands and development, um, wildfire risk, um, and, and then you take into all of the consideration all of the, the birds and the animals and the fish and the toads and, and the visuals and, and recreation. Um, trying to uh, put together a plan to address Aspen and to be able to help Aspen and, and help be able to improve those ecosystems while also taking, to, taking into account all of the other multiple uses that occur um, becomes quite complicated and there's lots of opinions. And so given, given those concerns and those issues and, and wanting to uh, try to do the best we could to, to address everybody's thoughts, ideas, and concerns. Um, that was kind of the, the initiation of and the need for bringing together a collaboration group to, to work and, and assist us with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Murray Bryan with the Grand Canyon Trust, what, what, what's, what was the perspective, what is the perspective of, uh, from a conservation group's perspective? You know, Aspen stands when they're healthy, harbor more native species than almost any other habitat, um, except maybe the streamside or riparian habitats. But Aspen is extraordinarily, uh, communities are extraordinarily rich in, in birds and grasses and flowers and shrubs and small mammals, as well as um, your um, more huntable animals like elk and deer. And so we were interested in all, all those species, and we wanted to pay particular attention to the aspen that don't grow with conifers. So about two-thirds of the aspen on the mountain grow where conifer grows, and as Jason mentioned, without fire, um, eventually the conifer overtops aspen, and um, you need to think about reintroducing fire there. Um, which will set back the conifers, but aspen will bounce back real quickly. But I was interested in the one-third of aspen in particular that don't grow with conifers. They don't require fire. They don't require 
disturbance, really, what they do require is that their sprouts can grow above six feet, which is the browse height of elk and deer. And then once they can get above six feet, they can go on up and become adults in the community um, <clears throat> and replenish the um, old aspen, which don't live terribly long and, and will die um, eventually. One stand is really one tree. And so if the older trees die and the younger trees keep being browsed, then eventually you only have a stand that's old aspen, and eventually it will die. So I was interested in, in the issue of browsing because that's, that was um, being due to deer and elk and cattle, and as a result, a lot of these aspen where there is no conifer weren't making it into the overstory. So I think our perspective was, you know, what is going on here besides just trees? Um, aspen is, provides shade for, as I mentioned, the flowers, the shrubs, the grasses, um, softwood for for um, cavity nesting birds, um, um, softwood for small mammals, and so on. So we were interested in the whole um, system that aspen can be. So uh, Tom Tippett's Utah Department of Food and Agriculture. So from a from a I guess the the grazing standpoint, what what were some of the factors? Monroe Mountain is um, an active. Forest, so it has grazing allotments on it. It has 11 grazing allotments on it. That includes 2,200 cows and almost 3,000 sheep. Whenever you, uh, whenever the Forest Service does work or disturbs the ground with vegetation, the expectation is that we rest those areas that are being disturbed or, or managed um, from grazing for a couple of years to let the vegetation reestablish. Um, this is a large-scale project, and it was going to affect a lot of those cows and a lot of those sheep. We wanted to make sure that we could come up with a way that those cows and those sheep had a place on the mountain, uh, no matter what was happening to the, the vegetation, to the conifer stands. Um, so we tried to work real hard that um, it may not be the exact same spot you were there last year or that you historically have been, but there's a spot on the mountain for all those um, mouths, all those livestock mouths on the forest. That was our that was our primary goal. Uh, you know, no lost time and no lost. Money. Now, I understand um, that uh, part of the problem that you know you're working on. Uh, everybody here um, is uh, at least a potential blame game, right? Um, that the most, most the, definitely. Yeah, there's several mouths on the forest. You know, not just livestock. There's wildlife. Uh, there's all kinds of wildlife from, from large ungulates to small small mammals, uh, nesting birds, all, all those type of things. And although um, cattle has somebody that is overseeing that, you know, there's a cowboy or a, or a sheep herder that's involved with that, you can uh, you can tell that guy, hey, your your livestock is in the wrong spot, move them. That's not so easy with an elk. Um, they don't respond very well to uh, phone calls or uh, traditional herding. So we had to do something there that would um, incorporate those animals too. 
we knew that they were there. Uh, in many cases, they are desirable. Um, maybe not the exact location they are at any one time, but we needed to incorporate those type of thoughts into this whole scheme, overall scheme of what we're going to do to manage um, the forage up on top of Mineral Mountain. So, uh, our us three here on this on this interview is just a small portion of the people that were involved in the whole collaborative. We had people from wildlife, we had sportsmen's groups, we had people from the community. They were all interested in what was happening on the mountain. Yeah, I wonder uh, your perspective, uh, Mary O'Brien. Uh, this this blame game that uh, could could have could have broken out and ruined things, right? Uh, that uh, some wildlife advocates saying the livestock are eating the all the aspen, and the some raising advocates saying it's the, the wildlife. Right. Is there a, um, there's a, there. Um, right. And one of the first things we did, which was really interesting, was set up five different sites where they were about 100 feet long, and we put a wildlife camera at either end and ran it all year um, at, to see who was eating the aspen. And... Um, Jody Gale with ex- a, a, a County Extension did a wonderful job of going through thousands of photos. And uh, what we found really early on was that elk were eating the young aspen and deer were and cattle were. We didn't have photographs of sheep eating the small aspen because we weren't in the portion of the mountain where sheep was, but we knew sheep eat aspen. So real early on, we knew that we all had to deal um, with all of the mouths that were eating aspen. Now, this is, again, particularly where there isn't conifer because the bigger the bigger issue wherever and aspen are growing together is really the lack of fire. But um, that early experiment of the whole group and, you know, Tom and I and um, um, County Extension all went out and did the measurements together, and so that settled that question really early on. And the other thing that helps with not having a blame game is that the group works with consensus. That means everybody um, who is in the group, and there was about 19 non-Forest Service representatives in the collaboration, um, every single person has to agree on um, a recommendation or a plan or a monitoring plan or um, a proposal to the Forest Service. And if any one person is one, any one representative of a, of a group, whether landowners or county or sportsmen's group or whatever, um, they can hold up the decision until the group works through their um, concerns. And that's a really interesting process. And some people would think, oh, you'll never get to decisions, but actually it has worked very well. The group realizes they've got to listen. Everyone has to listen to what everyone else has as concerns because otherwise we're never going to agree on anything, and yet we did. We made decisions um, 
we've made decisions for 11 years now, and every decision has been um, consensus. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're hearing a rare, uh, uh, unfortunately, public lands cooperation success story. Uh, the Monroe Mountain Working Group. Uh, we're hearing from three members of that working group, which uh, the group got together and uh, has been restoring Aspen on Monroe Mountain in central Utah. Later in the program, I'll ask the members of the group, I guess, uh, uh, lessons that maybe can be exported from this project to other public lands or any other intractable problem that we may have. More following this. And she said, yep, that plus sign means you're pregnant. I didn't believe her. I went back to the store, I bought a few more pregnancy tests, and I took all eight of them. Join us next time for more True Stories Told Live. This week is all about mothers, having a mom or being a mom. That's the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. Saturday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A while back, the Aspen on Monroe Mountain in central Utah were in serious need of restoration. The situation could easily have descended into a blame game with all sides blaming each other. Instead, all sides launched an innovative project, the Monroe Mountain Working Group. And uh, what has happened on that mountain is a public lands success story. We're talking with members of the Monroe Mountain Working Group today on the program. Uh, from the U.S. Forest Service, Jason Kling, Mary O'Brien with the Grand Canyon Trust, and Tom Tippetts with the Utah uh, Agriculture and Food Department. Here is more of our conversation. Uh, I want to turn to uh, Jason Kling uh, to talk about this, the working group. Um, so Mary O'Brien has talked about this. What, what's your perspective? It, seem, it seems to be working. Uh, why do you think it's working? Yeah, it has been working, and it's been extremely helpful. Um, you know, it's important to, to point out that the, the working group, um, 19 or 20 uh, different representatives on that group, and, and the Forest Service, um, Fish Lake National Forest, and, and the employees from here, um, you know, for uh, some Federal Advisory Committee Act reasons, uh, were not part of the working group. Uh, so the, the working group had uh, operating protocols, and as Mary um, described, um, uh, would, would uh, come up with uh, consensus recommendations, and those recommendations would then come back to the, uh, back to the Forest Service. But as, as the working group was meeting, and as they would work through uh, issues, concerns, and try to come up with recommendations that, that everybody could support, um, and as they would vote on those recommendations, um, although the Forest Service was there and attending meetings and would answer questions, uh, the Forest Service would not actually vote. So, um, so there was a, you know, there was that separation, and the working group understood that they're not really a, a formal decision body, but they provide recommendations to the to the forest and to the Fish Lake. So. So it was important to, to spell that out and, and have that common understanding from the beginning. We had a great facilitator and Dr. Steve Daniels from, from Utah State University that, that helped with that process. Uh, and so as a working group, you know, they would work through things and then they would come up with a consensus recommendation that would then get uh, shared with the forest. And of course, the forest was, was engaged in, in, 
and participated in that effort. So, so we many times knew what the recommendations were going to be before they formally came to us. Um, but it was it was good to have the working group there as a as a sounding board with all of the diverse uh, interest. Um, it, it provided some some knowledge that when a recommendation came, it had been vetted through pretty thoroughly, and that uh, the concerns had all been considered, listened to, uh, looked at. And by the time it got to the Forest Service, it um, most times, I think just about every time, was was uh, fairly well put together, and it wasn't hard for us to then um, adopt that recommendation and then uh, carry it forward. Uh, yeah, very very interesting and, and a great success story. Uh, I want to turn to Tom Tippett's, uh, your perspective on the on the working group process. Um, it, it, everybody that you worked with, uh, did it feel like they they felt like their voices were being heard? Is it, and, and are there other factors why you think this worked? Um, one of the things that was kind of interesting on this project, one of the first things we did was we went on a, a large field trip. We went up and looked at lots of different places on the mountain as a group. And, you know, um, getting a large group together to start talking about things, it's easy to say, yeah, I know what's going on up there uh, because I have my favorite spot up on the mountain and, and this is what's happening there and that must be what's happening across the entire mountain. Sometimes that's not true. Um, but when you have a big group, everybody's looking at the same thing stop at different spots on the mountain and start looking at things, asking questions, getting some information. When we started out here, we were kind of a broken, not broken, but individuals, kind of coming from our own perspectives and different things. Um, and after that large field trip and then a couple different times of meeting together and talking about the things we saw, we were kind of on the same page. We all knew what we were talking about. When we talked about... Um, what we call blinker spots, uh, blinker sites of, of aspen stents. We stood there on the red road and we looked at them. We knew what we were talking, what everybody was talking about. We had an uh, idea what that was. And we talked about, you know, a good aspen stand, maybe uh, one that was pretty um, universal. Uh, I mean, uh, had the small ones, the medium ones, and the large one there at Milo's Kitchen. We stood there. Everybody looked at it. We walked through it. So. One of the successes of that group, the reasons of the success for that group was we were all kind of on the same page from really close to the beginning. And I think that was a real important step when you have a large group with diverse backgrounds looking at the same thing. That was a really good way to get everybody going in the same direction. Mm. We were there a long time. You know, we've been there in, that, in those meetings for a long, long time. Some people at different times may have thought at any one meeting, man, I don't know that I was able to convey what I was feeling at the time, or I don't know that everybody understood what I was talking about. But over time and multiple meetings and kind of working through that stuff, I think everybody had a really good chance of being heard and understood. So I, that was probably, from my perspective, the reason of success for that group. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to... Um, and and I'd, yes. I'd, I'd add just a, a couple things. That that field tour that Tom mentioned was three days. It wasn't just a one one off, um, one day trip. We we saw 
so many types of conditions of aspen on that mountain. Um, and eventually, as Tom says, we became a group that actually took care of each other. If someone had to be absent one day and there was a decision coming up that they would be interested in, the group would say, you know, um, you know that person um, is absent today. Why don't we put off making... Um, taking our consensus vote until they're they're here. In other words, we learned enough about what mattered to whom that we didn't ever try to get around that. We always dealt with whatever mattered most to each representative. Yeah, this is it's just extraordinary, and and uh, the reason we're focusing on this, of course, is success story not only for the Aspens. We'll get into the the results a little later in the program, but a success story in collaborating, and you know, and and disparate groups that perhaps in other circumstances would have been fighting. Uh, Mary O'Brien, anything else you want to say about why you think this particular process worked or is working? Well, yeah, I. Um, Jason mentioned Stephen Daniels, a really remarkable facilitator, cheerful, um, keeps track of somebody um, having been silent most of the meeting and will call on that person. What do you think? Um, Very can-do, reminding everybody of the progress we have made. So I think that works. And I think another um, big element is that Every question is is a valid question, so that if someone doesn't think um, the same way as another person, we figure out a way to find out what is actually the fact. If we, you know, the, the simplest example is the who's eating the aspen, and we figured out the simple. Um, research with the wildlife cameras and and showed that. But there's more complicated questions, and the group has been able to work with a remarkable researcher, Sam St. Clair, up at Brigham Young University and his doctoral students and summer teams, so that um, when the group had questions and the Forest Service had questions and Sam St. Clair had questions. We jointly figure out how that might best be answered. And I know I did some research with some students from Whitman College, and the group accepted the results of that study because I had um, said ahead of time how we would do it. I all the data were all the. Um, numbers we measured and so on were available to everyone. And so this issue of um, how do we get questions answered and and the, sometimes the Monroe Mountain Working Group would answer it, sometimes my students would, oftentimes um, Brigham, uh, Brigham Young University has done amazing research, and, and now there was even fire research um, from folks around the country last year, they've become so interested in in how fire is behaving when we set it on on purpose. So um, the science uh, from all perspectives has been an important part. 
I want to uh, uh, turn back um, uh, to our district ranger, U.S. Forest Service, uh, Jason Kling. Uh, general general lessons, uh, do you think, that we can take from this working group, the success this working group has had? A lot of disparate uh, parties who, under other circumstances, might have been fighting and disagreeing and, and not coming together. Another thing that, that played into the success of this was just everybody was there for a common reason and had a common goal, and everybody recognized uh, the Aspen ecosystems on Monroe Mountain needed some help. And so folks were able to um, not lose sight of why they were there in the first place. Um, so, yeah, so lessons learned, you know, for me, um, as we started this process, I way underestimated the amount of time, energy, and work uh, it was going to take and require to um, to work through this process. Uh, the Monroe Mountain Working Group uh, met almost on a monthly basis for a good three and a half, four years. Um, in the in Richfield, Utah, and the most common place was uh, in the basement of the Sevier County Administration Building. Um, and so that was, you know, a lot of meetings, a lot of field trips. Um, mentioned, you know, we just way underestimated the amount of time. So, um, and at the same time, I'd also say it was needed and it was important and there and it was probably still the best approach. And so as you think about other projects and taking uh, similar approaches, you know, when you have complicated issues like this, these are not things that you're going to be able to resolve and take care of in just a matter of a few weeks or a few months. Um, it takes time to uh, develop uh, the relationships, develop the trust, uh, be able to do the monitoring and look at the science uh, to be able to address the questions and the issues and concerns that are at hand. Um, you know, you also have to have the right people at the table. That's another big lesson learned is, is uh, you got to have people that are open to collaboration, uh, willing to listen to other people's ideas and perspectives, and be able to, to um, be open to finding uh, solutions that meet everybody's needs. And that may mean a little bit of uh, give and take and, and trying to understand uh, where other people are coming from. Um, so having the right people at the table with the right personalities uh, is key. Is key. It's really, really important. And then I think it was also important that the the membership of the Monroe Mountain Working Group consisted of folks that could um, make decisions. So it wasn't like the working group would discuss a, a particular recommendation, and then you'd have several folks that would say, "Well, I got to go back and and talk to so and so." and then I can come back to you with the decision next month. Uh, we had the right membership there that, that folks could make, were in positions where they could make decisions uh, representing uh, uh, whoever it is that they were representing. So that, that helped with the timeline. Uh, and even, even with that said, you know, the working group still met, like I said, three and a half, four years, almost on a monthly basis. Uh, so those are some of the, the take-homes. Um, mm -hmm. Having, a key, having that right facilitator was also very, very important from what I 
from what I saw. Mm. Uh, I want to uh, talk a little bit more, uh, Mary O'Brien. You've talked about this, so maybe you could uh, talk a little bit more about this—the the role of uh, monitoring. Uh, you know, apply some uh, science. Uh, I could imagine. You know, if, if there's debate about who's eating the young aspen, uh, you set up some cameras. That—that—that's the question, right? Well, yeah, and and um, something, a, a couple of things about that. Um, uh, BYU um, set up what's called four-way exposures some of the and this was in areas where prescribed burn was had taken place now the sprouts were um, coming up and you had an exposure that's so tall no um, elk deer or cattle can get in then one that's lower that the elk and deer can get in but the cattle cannot and then one that's high and um, only deer can get in because you leave an 18-inch um, gap at the bottom, and then you have outside where cattle and elk and deer are all eating. So um, it's not only who's eating aspen, but who's eating the most of it. <laughs> um, w- what kind of management is going to allow these aspen sprouts to actually um, make it through that magic six-foot height and then they're free to go up into the overstory. But another aspect about the monitoring is the group still meets. Um, even though the project is underway and we're in, um, is it the fourth, fifth year um, of, a, of, of what is um, largely a 10-year project, um, the group is not meeting every month, but the group is meeting and going out into the field at least once a year to go see how things are, are, are going, um, and are there course corrections that we would recommend to the Forest Service? For instance, some of the areas where conifer has been hand-cut out rather than burned out because it's near some private inholdings and you don't want to just set fire to the forest, um, some of that isn't working so well. Um, uh, there isn't as many sprouts, and they're getting overwhelmed by the browsing. So how can you adjust your plans? And I think the most important thing about this process is we've got lots of eyes and and thoughts and ideas on the table rather than it being um, the Forest Service deciding um, all by itself without the aid of thoughts of um, we've got a scientist from Rocky Mountain Research Station, we've got the state forestry fire with their thoughts about how best to protect the private inholdings. Um, we've got, um, um, of course, Tom Tippett's with the, with the grazers. All these have ideas of how to manage elk and deer and cattle and Utah Division of Wildlife Resources has been marvelous in being flexible about how they might do a little bit different elk management on the mountain. So I think it's the the many eyes and many perspectives that really is essential. Whether we're talking about complex problems like pinyon and juniper um, expansion, or we're talking about cheatgrass um, uh, fed fires whether we're talking about beavers, whether we're talking about any project, any activity, um, any res- environmental resource problem, 
that's controversial, it's always good to get as many perspectives as as possible. Uh, I wonder, um, uh, Jason Kling or Tom Tippett, uh, any other comments on the science uh, used here? One, one thing is, yeah, we did have um, Sam Sinclair come from BYU, and we did have Rocky Mountain Research Station involved. But a lot of the, a lot of the, prelim, the first preliminary uh, data gathering was done by the, the collaborative members. We went out and did it. We measured sprouts. We measured uh, uh, how big, how tall, and, and our best guess on who was eating these different uh, stages of aspen. So we did it, and that built a, a database that we can all look back and, and kind of understand what was happening when we, when we did it together. That built a um, common knowledge within the group of what was going on. Then when we brought other people to come in and kind of give them uh, give them their best um, shot at uh, gathering data, maybe a little different than we had, maybe a little more resources than we had, we understood where that was coming from and why it was being done. And we were able to uh, go through their data and, and really apply it to the ground and understand how that was going to work best for us. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams. We're talking with the three members of the Monroe Mountain Working Group. It's a working group which uh, has worked for the past several years restoring Aspen on Monroe Mountain in central Utah. And, of course, that's uh, the focus of, uh, of the work. And, in fact, in the next segment, we're going to talk about outcomes, what, what happened on that mountain with the Aspen. But uh, some very important lessons about working together for the benefit of our public lands, uh, valuable lessons uh, that we're hearing about uh, today. Uh, more following this. Hello, this is Mary Hears, co-producer of Utah Public Radio's award-winning documentary, Ride the Rails. Last year, we celebrated 150 years of transcontinental train travel. This year, as we mark another anniversary of the pounding of the Golden Spike, we are rebroadcasting our Spike 150 storytelling program. Listen to Ride the Rails here on UPR, Friday morning at 10, Saturday afternoon at 3, or online anytime at upr.org. Tune in May 8th and 9th for the UPR original documentary, Ride the Rails, heard only on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are hearing uh, today um, a public lands cooperation success story. We're talking about the Monroe Mountain Working Group. And we're talking with uh, three members of that group, Fish Lake National Forest Richfield District Manager, or Ranger rather, uh, Jason Kling, uh, Mary O'Brien, Utah Forests Program Director with the Grand Canyon Trust, and Tom Tippetts, Central Region Coordinator for the Utah Agriculture and Food Department's Grazing Improvement Program. Uh, so, Jason Kling, um, you articulated the problem at the beginning of the, the program, and I'd like to maybe move into what have the outcomes been. It's, it's been a successful project, I hear. Uh, so, first of all, tell us, it was a pretty steep decline in Aspen, right, that you, were, you, you told us at the beginning of the program? Yeah, 70% uh, decline. Um, and so 
so as a result of this, as, as we move into some of the accomplishments and outcomes, um, one of the first things that, that came out of this process is, is the Forest Service, we were able to complete an environmental impact statement. And within that environmental impact statement, you know, we, we uh, outlined and described a, a plan moving forward to be able to address these, these issues and concerns and, and try to change the, the trajectory of, of that 70% decline. Um, and so it, that took some work to work through the environmental analysis process, but um, we were eventually able to complete the environmental impact statement. I was able to, to sign a record of decision that then uh, authorized uh, a variety of different Aspen restoration treatments to start occurring on the monorail. Um, and the one thing with this Aspen EIS that um, I think is a success is it covered um, basically all of our Aspen and mixed conifer ecosystems on this um, that, that occurred throughout that 175,000 acres. So it was very uh, large scale, landscape scale, and uh, encompassed um, all Aspen on the entire mountain range. So I was able to sign that record of decision back in December of 2015. So we're going on five years now. And during that time, uh, you know, we've been able to do a variety of prescribed fire treatments. We've been able to do some quite a few uh, mechanical uh, thinning treatments. Um, we also recognized, uh, you know, back in 2015, Forest Service and the, the working group that although we, we think we have a very good plan moving forward, uh, we're probably also going to, we probably have overlooked a few things. And through our monitoring, we're probably going to learn a few things. And we also want the flexibility to be able to adapt and adjust based on that monitoring and what we're learning. So the, the plan accounts for that as well. And in our first five years, uh, we, have had, we have learned some new things that we did not think of initially or did not anticipate initially. And so being able to tie that science monitoring piece to adaptive management and adjust as you move along um, are all things that we've been doing. So we've done several thousand acres of prescribed fire treatments, mechanical treatments, um, we've been able to adjust, uh, make tweaks to livestock grazing management, wildlife management, and, and we're starting to see some really good results. Um, you know, I think long-term, keeping your eye on the, on the goals of not only being able to help Aspen, but then the side benefits that come with that. You know, you're improving habitat for wildlife. You're improving um, habitat for, for, for uh, range. You're reducing wildfire risk, um, you know, and, and the, the benefits, you know, I could talk all day long about the benefits. Mm. Uh, we're, we're, uh, we're reaching uh, to kind of final minutes of the show. We have a little bit of time left. Uh, I wanted to see if Tom Tippett's had any uh, ideas on or what your view of the accomplishment, the outcomes have been. You know, on, on the landscape, I'm a kind of a, grazing guy, range, range improvement kind of guy. And so I'm looking at uh, um, what's happening on the ground. And um, on the landscape, repairing areas are probably the most productive areas on, on any landscape in the West. Water, 
consistent water makes everything grow a lot better than, than intermittent water. Well, the next um, ecotype that is the next most productive is aspen stands. And on a, on a Monroe Mountain-type um, place, you know, a Forest Service, uh, higher elevation type, so that's a lot of acres, fairly productive lot of acres. And when we start talking about 70% decline in aspen, meaning all these aspen stands have lots of conifer, and they're being overtopped, they're starting to turn from an aspen stand with lots of uh, forbs and tall grasses underneath it to a conifer stand with, that's overtopped aspen that's really reduced that reduce the ability for uh, neotropical birds to find places to nest and to forage, reduce areas for elk to kind of um, forage and find good quality feed, reduce areas for uh, deer to find good quality feed in hiding areas, Redu- reduced areas for cattle and sheep to find good quality feed. And, you know, when those things are reduced, everything gets kind of compressed in other parts of the landscape. When we start doing... Uh, mechanical treatments of prescribed birds, and we start getting lots more areas where um, aspen shrouds are, are beginning to grow and beginning to recruit into the stand. Uh, some of those other things are coming back into the areas, uh, large uh, forbs, tall grasses, uh, even the, the aspen themselves. Really, we call um, increase the pie. Lots more area for lots more things to be out there, including cattle, including sheep. And from my standpoint, that is the, the success of that. Once mm. this project gets done, once we have a large area of these uh, aspen stands that have been overtopped by conifer trees, once they're treated and they start sprouting back, those areas are going to be available for lots of different uh, animals, not just cattle, not just, just sheep, but uh, elk and deer and uh, jackrabbits and badgers and uh, neotropical birds and all sorts of things. And when those pups things have a place on the mountain, the mountain itself is a better place to be. So from my standpoint, it'll be a success. Uh, we just have about five minutes left in the in the program, and I want to just give everybody uh, just a couple of minutes uh, for, for, you know, lessons learned. And, and I'll start with uh, Mary O'Brien. Uh, maybe your top couple of lessons learned, and, and are these applicable in other settings, do you think? Yeah. And, and actually, this project arose out of an earlier project that was also a consensus project statewide, looking at guidelines for restoring aspens. So that um, Jason, when he agreed to take on this uh, project on the whole mountain to restore aspen, and with a, um, uh, a big group of um, diverse voices, um, it was really kind of a test run of those statewide guidelines, and it's, it's um, uh, a great success. And what those guidelines emphasized was don't just treat symptoms. Um, look at the causes of your problem and address those causes. And I think that's what um, the Forest Service and... Um, the Monroe Mountain Working Group has has focused on how can we um, make Aspen an ongoing um, success on the mountain um, and let the mountain do what it wants to do, which is grow Aspen successfully. 
and can we get out of the way for where we have um, made it hard for the Aspen to to do well. So I think um, not every Aspen restoration project has to involve 11 years of a um, uh, consensus group, but by looking at how we approached elk and um, cattle and private inholdings and um, boreal toads and um, uh, goshawk, um, that it gives an idea of, of um, how to have success with the, the total system. Let me turn to Tom Tippett's next. Uh, top lesson learned. Do you think it can be exported? Large landscape-scale projects work, and it's not easy to get done. That's the overall lesson. Um, it takes time. It takes a lot of input from lots of different people uh, that are interested and involved in that large landscape. But doing large areas versus small 150-acre, maybe even 200-acre treatments and then just kind of walking away saying, you know, we did that, but it wasn't nearly big enough to affect the large landscape. Those, those need to be rethought, and we need to go bigger. We need to be able to do things on a large scale large landscape scale, and that can be done. It just takes a little more time, a lot more flexibility, um, willingness to look at all the issues that are happening, um, take all that information and come up with the best plan from that. Mm. I think that's the thing that I learned best was you can do large-scale things. It just takes a little time to do it. Right. Well, we'll give Jason Kling the, the last word here, the top lesson learned for you. Yeah, um, you know, through this process, we've been able to de- to develop some really strong partnerships. Uh, partnerships with Utah Division of Forestry, Fire, State Lands, Utah Division of Wildlife Resources. Uh, you know, partnerships with the Mono Mountain Working Group and Rocky Mountain Research Station, Utah State, uh, Brigham Young University. Um, partnerships with um, the Utah Watershed Restoration um, Program and all of the partners that are a part of that with Sportsman's for Fish and Wildlife, Rocky Mountain Health Foundation, Mule Deer Foundation. Um, you know, there's just so many partners that we've been able to, to work with and develop relationships with over um, the course of this project. And, and uh, with this large group of stakeholders and partnerships, we've been able to develop uh, a far better plan than, than we would have been able to develop, um, than any one person would have been able to develop just on their own. And, um, and so now that we've got a plan together and we're into the implementation phase, these partnerships are so important and so critical. You know, with declining budgets and so forth, um, in order to, to do the work at the scale that is needed to make the difference that we all desire, it takes a large group and partnerships and, and everybody willing to come to the table for a common goal, common purpose, and working together. And, and uh, we've, we've been successful doing that. But we still have a lot of work to do. Uh, we've done a lot of work, but we still have a long ways to go. And I'm confident and appreciative with, with those that have been involved and will continue to be involved. Uh, we'll continue to learn, we'll continue to adapt, and with time, 
we'll uh, we'll get to where we all want to be with our Aspen ecosystems on the monorail. Well, we'll uh, leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, very, appreciate very much talking to three members of the uh, Monroe Mountain Working Group. Uh, big success story there. Um, and we've been talking with uh, Mary O'Brien, who's with the Grand Canyon Trust. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, we're talking with Tom Tippetts with uh, the uh, Utah Department of Food and Agriculture. Thank you to you. Thanks very much. And uh, Jason Kling with the U.S. Forest Service. Thank you. Yes, thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR, Logan. KUSK, Vernal. KUSL, Richfield. KUST, Moab. KCEU, Price. KUSU, FM, Logan. Also heard at upr.org. UPR is your public radio station. And we share your concerns about finding ways to safely support restaurants and retailers in our communities. That is why we are offering free on-air and online announcements to help you better inform your customers about COVID-19 shopping, dining, and entertainment services. Simply go to upr.org and submit your hours for dine-in operations, pandemic policy shopping guidelines, virtual road trip links, and special curbside or drop-off food or grocery delivery details. UPR is committed to reconnecting us all, however your business or organization is making that happen. Let us help you by going to upr.org. I'm David Kaup, and I listen to Utah Public Radio in Germany using the UPR app. Thank you, David, and all our UPR listeners. You help make Utah Public Radio possible. Stay with us. Living on Earth is next.